HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. Offered in print and digitally on TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about soup kitchens. Since the ancient times, societies have helped feed the poor. It's nothing that we've recently invented. Those who had no access to food were given food to eat. Those who were food insecure, as we hear so much today. And whether it was just an extra grain from the town dole after the town dole was met, or leftovers from the grand houses of of fancy banquets or alms baskets that were filled with donated foods. Records, yes, records in ancient Roman times uh, show that there was, if not a system, a practice of feeding the hungry. It's, I guess, what makes us human, a moral obligation. Over the centuries, systems were devised to feed those in need sometimes from the governing bodies or civic organizations, but most likely and most often from religious organizations. In times of crisis, of course, these systems or outlets of providing food increased and always staffed with the help of volunteers. Photo documents the people waiting in lines, bread lines, um, and waiting for soup kitchens to open of the Great Depression. Those are very common photos you can find on uh, from the Library of Congress and find them online. It's not news that the recent coronavirus pandemic that we are in, not recent, it's we're in it, has caused tremendous economic hardship around the globe. Food insecurity affects 800 million people globally, including 17 million households in every county of America. And those numbers are, are probably old numbers by now and they're rising daily. Here in the U.S. alone, the number, total number of jobs lost during the pandemic has risen to over 33.5 million. And yet many more of those who are unemployed are not reported. They don't qualify for benefits and they don't have any backup. And they struggle to provide food for themselves and for their families. So once again, it's a time of crisis. And our focus is, or should be, drawn to the need to help and support food pantries and food banks, soup kitchens. 
I was actually surprised to learn that according to a government survey, over 90% of food banks and emergency kitchens and all any kind of systematic food rescue organization, mostly grassroots, were established after 1981, 1981. That, that surprised me. That happened uh, during the, when the Reagan administration cut back on welfare pro- provisions. So I guess uh, people stepped in and said, well, we better have a, a system in place to feed people. Once again, our moral obligation to feed the hungry. My guest today has firsthand knowledge of these efforts. For the past 10 years, Stephen Henderson has worked in various soup kitchens across the country and around the globe. Stephen is a journalist whose writing has appeared in publications such as the New York Times, LA Times, Time and Country, Food and Wine. A lot of food articles going in there, I see here. And 10 years ago, on an assignment in India, he ended up volunteering in a soup kitchen, which sparked his interest to do more to help those in need and take a closer look at the work of feeding the hungry. Ultimately, it led him to write his newly released and very timely book, I must say, The 24-Hour Soup Kitchen, Soul-Stirring Lessons in Gastro-Philanthropy, where he details different ways in which people in need across the globe are fed by soup kitchens. Welcome, Stephen. Uh, it, it it's you know in in putting together thoughts for my introduction i have to say it's not a cheery topic but the work that that the volunteers do and then the role that's that soup kitchens and food pantries play is a very enlightening topic and i and i shouldn't be glum about it um i mean the need is just so overwhelming that you know and i think it has a lot of us feeling a little um disheartened, but, but I'm trying to remain positive here. And I think it's wonderful. So I, that you have worked at so many of these and that so many of them exist, um, food pantries, food banks. Yes. But we still use the the term soup kitchen. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Um, how did you, what, what, okay. You worked in, in India and you had an opportunity to work in a soup kitchen Describe that experience and how that really set you off on this journey to discover all about different soup kitchens around the world. Well, sure. I'm uh, happy to. Um, As you mentioned, I'm a journalist. And uh, about 10 years ago, I was invited to cover uh, Delhi's first fashion week. I'm not a fashion writer, but I said, sure, because I'd never been to India and I was not going to pass up a trip to India. So I get there and I'm watching these fantastically overproduced, very elaborate, long, psychedelic fashion shows. And I have this young assistant who's been assigned to me, a young gentleman who was a Sikh. And he said to me one day, he he just insisted on calling me Mr. Henderson all the time, even though I would (laughs) beg him to call me by my first name. He said, you know, Mr. Henderson, would you like to come to my temple? And I said, well, of course. And so we go to this temple in central Delhi. The Sikh temples are called Gurudwaras. And it was called the Gurudwara Bagla Sanghib. And it used to be a Maharaja's palace. And it was this fantastically grand house surrounded by marble plazas. And there was a huge, probably twice the size of an Olympic swimming pool, 
you know, basin of water where Sikhs believe that if they step into it, they'll be healed of, of afflictions and all these amazing things. My head is spinning. And to top it all off, we go into what's called a langar, L-A-N-G-A-R, which is a soup kitchen that's open 24 hours a day. And it fed, the one in Delhi feeds 20,000 people every single day. And it's run by volunteers. There's one paid employee and they don't know their food from day to day. All of that is donated on its own schedule. And, you know, my hair is standing up on end. You know, I just, I can't believe this. And so I was fascinated enough that I wangled another trip to India so that I could go back there and volunteer to cook in this soup kitchen for a week, which I did. And it so amazed me that I thought, well... I'm a travel writer and I'm going to be assigned to go to other places around the world. And why don't I add a couple days here and there and see how the hungry get fed? What's the mechanism? I mean, you know, it's a machine to feed that many people in one day in one operation. So how is it done in other parts of the world? So that's what got me going on this story. All right. Well, I was, I too was, I was amazed when I saw the figure 20,000. I said, wait a minute, I'm sure they had a fact checker. 20,000 people a day? I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. Well, it is. And I, I, it's funny because I, I had forgotten this, but there's a bigger, grander, even more impressive Sikh temple in Amritsar, which is in Punjab. And the soup kitchen there at the Golden Temple, which is kind of the Vatican of Sikhism, the Golden Temple in Amritsar, the soup kitchen there is estimated to feed between 100 and 300,000 people a day. It's, it's, I, I, I can't, it's unimaginable. It's quite, I know, quite, I know. Yeah. So when you, so you, in your writing, you describe um, mass cookery. So this, obviously, this is what you're talking about, mass cookery. You're, you're cooking a lot of food here. Yeah. But uh, yeah. talk about that term, mass cookery, a little bit. I mean, is it just the huge vats, the huge amounts, or what? Well, you know, it, it obviously depends on the kitchen, but um, you've probably doubled a recipe, maybe, if, you know, you have a recipe for six and you're having a dinner party. And if you double a recipe, you can pretty much just double everything. But the the real science of mass cookery is... You know, if you take a recipe for four people and you times it by 50, every single thing, every bit of salt, every bit of fluid, every everything, Uh -uh. there's a kind of (laughs) anti-alchemy where you're not going to get something that 200 people want to eat. And so why is that? And, And so there's people, and I've almost gotten to the point where I can judge these things. I'm now cooking in a soup kitchen in Hudson, New York on Tuesdays, and... To, anyway, so mass cookery is figuring out how do you take enough food and cook it in a quantity with the right amount of spices and the right amount of fluid to get enough food that's going to feed hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Right, right. It is, I mean, it is. It's 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 a it's a different art in cookery altogether. I would imagine. It is. 
Yeah. And well, good for Jose Andres, who's, who's probably the most famous mass cooker yes, on yes. earth right now. Yeah, well we and we we talk about we will talk about that a little later and and how Yeah. It it has it has created a whole new form of of cooking, if you will, and, and of of eating, food serving. Um but you use this term in your title, gastrophilanthropy, and you talk about global gastrophilanthropy. Um, describe a little bit more, I mean, obviously the different ways in which you feed hungry people, but um, describe more, a little more to me what you mean by that. Maybe a little bit of biography may be helpful here. I'm, I'm a child of the church. My father was a Baptist preacher. I grew up mostly around New York, but I, I I joke, but it's true that I was pretty much socialized in church basements, and um, Baptists, especially in the late fifties, early sixties, when I was a child and an adolescent, Baptists didn't drink, they didn't dance, they didn't go to the movies. Pretty much, the only vice they were allowed was food, and so there would be big church suppers and dinners, and the ladies would all bring potluck you know, their own casserole or a bunch of church ladies would get together and make a big pot of chili or, you know, a big thing of something. And everybody got together and it was a party. You know, there was no music, there was no dancing, there was no booze. But I mean, this this was the big church event. And that just always excited me and, and gave me this idea that the way a community comes together or or shows affection or love for each other is kind of through food. And philanthropy is taking care of those who are less fortunate or those in need, giving to others, to the neediest. And so I, I'm not sure I invented the word gastrophilanthropy, but I'm sure I'm going to take credit for that. I, I so think you I, should. I just thought, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take credit for it, Linda. So <laughs> Showing love and concern for others through food is what is what I mean by gastrophilanthropy. Mm. And uh, when I was growing up on Long Island in the suburbs of New York, my, my parents would drive us into New York City to the Bowery where there was an old and famous mission that's still there called the Bowery Mission. And I think my parents kind of did it equally out of concern for the needy and to show us you know, the, the children of, you know, I mean, if you're a preacher's kid, you're not exactly rich, but you're not poor. But to show us that there were much needier people than we were. But I think my parents also were wanting us to see, you know, this is how you might end up if you don't <laughs> study or do well in school. And so it was a little bit of a cautionary tale as well. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I think you as far as the gastrophilanthropy, you should definitely take credit for. I did a search to try to find, you know, some background on the word, and it only leads to you. Every time I look it up, it oh, leads well. to you. Yeah. Okay. Well, with it, you know, maybe one or two exceptions, but I think they probably got it from get you and just didn't give you credit. Um, but I'm glad that you mentioned your background. Not only were you raised a PK preacher's kid. Not interesting. Not the right. first time I read that, but that's cute. I love it. You know, you're your own breed of people of kids, right? Um, but, well, there are PKs and there are MKs, missionaries are MKs? kids. Oh, missionaries kids. Okay. Mis right, right. Yeah. Well, after college, you continued your education. You went on to Yale Divinity School. So uh, that coupled with, you know, your background of it being raised by a preacher. I mean, 
How, certainly that did influence, how do you feel that influenced your work on doing this research? In between graduating from Wheaton College, which is a evangelical Christian college in the mm -hmm. suburbs of Chicago, the probably the single most famous alumni is Billy Graham. Um, I worked for a number of years in public relations where I worked on big food accounts. I worked on potato chip brands and coffee brands and cookie brands. And um, so I, I learned about food marketing and I, I had a pretty good career in public relations, but I'm a big reader. I'm a writer. I, I, I didn't think I wanted to spend my life banging the drum for potato chips, for, <laughs> even though I was making a pretty good living. Um, so I decided I wanted to get a PhD in English and, and teach American literature. And I, I ended up at Yale Divinity School because they had a program where you could take half your classes in theology at the Divinity School and half your classes in English down in the English department, which I did. But anyway, long story short, I decided to stop after my master's. But I think being at Yale Divinity School was a place where there were a number of people who were training to become clerics, but there were a number of people who also were thinking they were going to go into public policy or they were going to go into social work or they were going to go into organizations that help the neediest. And it, 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 it opened my eyes to the, the possibilities of social service. I had not thought of myself as a social worker, or I still don't, but that there were, there were many different ways that, that we could work to help those less fortunate than we are. And that was a big influence on me too. But I got out of divinity school and I still needed to make a living. So I, I worked in PR for a number of years more until then I turned myself into a journalist. Mm. Well, uh, you worked in, I mean, when you say worked, you worked in a lot of soup kitchens, you volunteered. I mean, this is, you know, working in a soup kitchen is, is not going to make you rich, that's for sure. Um, because well, you, no. <laughs> they, so they were these brief, you sort of would extend your, you said you extend your, your travel assignments and, and make sure you had some time where you could give a couple days to, to, um, to soup kitchens. Well, yes. And, and in one of these trips that I took to Iran, I discovered what, a really fascinating take on gastrophilanthropy that happens in Muslim culture, where mostly women, you know, because probably around the world, women are still doing most of the cooking at home. But Muslim women will will strike a deal with Allah. They'll they'll pray and they'll say, well, you know, God, you know, Allah, if you help my daughter to meet a nice man, or you help me to become pregnant, or you, you know, make my husband treat me nicer, on the anniversary of this prayer request coming true, I will cook for poor people, feed needy people of a certain number for a certain duration. Like some women will say, I'll feed 20 people for, you know, five years. Some women will say, I'll feed 200 people for 20 years. You know, it's, it all depends on, I guess, the how big a request you're making of Allah or how big you think you can cook. But anyway, they strike these deals. And I just thought, wow, that's really interesting. This idea of bargaining with God Kind of a quid. It really is a quid pro quo that right, you, you right. give me what I want, God, and I'll I'll 
do what you tell me to do, which is to take care of the less fortunate. So when I got back to New York, my niece was starting a PhD program in psychology in Pittsburgh. And so I called up Amy and I said, listen, I found out about this new, you know, Iranian form of cooking for poor people. And I'm going to make a deal with you. You know, you're going to be in Pittsburgh for six years getting your PhD. For every year that you complete of your doctoral program, I will come to Pittsburgh and I'll find a soup kitchen and I'll cook there for a day to learn how the kitchen works. But then I'll then buy all the food and cook at the soup kitchen the next day. And so she said, well, great, Uncle Steve, if that's what you want to do. So, you know, wonderful. And I'll help you. And so the first year, I just called this woman, Sister Liguri, at, at this. She was she was a saint. She, I found out she just died in November of last year. But she was a she was a fantastic former Catholic nun who had opened this soup kitchen called Jubilee Soup Kitchen in Pittsburgh and I called her up and I said, you know, Sister Liguori, I know how to cook and I'm going to come to Pittsburgh and I explained this thing I wanted to do. And she said, great, you know, come, we would love that. And I, I, I didn't, I'd cooked for big crowds before, but I had never made lunch for 300 people before. So she took a leap of faith in you know, believing that I could do this. And I took a leap in faith in myself, believing that I could do this. And it worked. I, I made chicken curry for 300 people and everybody ate it. So <laughs> no complaints. That was, that was that was my first adventure in cooking for that big of a crowd. And so then I returned to Pittsburgh for all the years that Amy was was getting her PhD while I continued to do this thing around the world. And then at a certain point, I thought, well, I think all these stories are so interesting. I'm going to compile them into a book, which, and, as and you nicely said, has yeah, well, become the 24-hour soup kitchen. Um, it, why 24-hour? What, what did the, what, why did you choose 24? Well, that's, in, that's because of that first soup kitchen that I, I, I cooked in in India, which is open 24-7. Oh, Okay. Because that's kind of an unusual thing for a soup kitchen. I mean, it's actually today it's unusual to find soup kitchens that serve three meals. They usually serve one meal a day. Um, but they do. They yeah. Do. So yeah, that was I was interested. Soup kitchen I'm working at in Hudson only serves lunch. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you, I mean, when you volunteered at these soup kitchens, I mean, did you have was it? Did you have a pretty easy entree? I mean, they take volunteers, I know, but you really wanted to get in and find out how the kitchen was running. How, how did that work for you? Um, you know, again, on a case-by-case basis, some kitchens, uh, well, first of all, I, I would encourage any listener to understand that if you call a soup kitchen and volunteer, no one is, no soup kitchen is going to refuse you. Right. Soup kitchens need help any time of the year, but especially in, as you noted, with the, Corona pandemic and soup kitchens being overwhelmed, they need help. And also soup kitchens are are typically run by retirees or people that are not working full time. And a lot of the soup kitchens now are are so short of staff because those people are more fearful of contracting the virus. And so they're staying home. So right. soup kitchens need help. So if you call and offer your services, the soup kitchen will say, yes, please come. Now, Depending on the soup kitchen and depending on your cooking skills and depending on your courage, you may not be standing over a hot stove making 
lunch for several hundred people right away, but everybody knows how to chop an onion, I would assume, or peel carrots or peel potatoes, or even just serving up the food. But uh, to answer your question, Linda, in, in different parts of the world, I was welcomed into the kitchen and immediately asked to help cook. And some, I was more of a sous chef of washing cabbage or peeling vegetables. Um, it all it all just depended. Hmm. Um, I, I would say, though, that it was easier to get into the kitchen in other parts of the world than it is in the United States because... In the United States, you know, even, and as they should be, soup kitchens are carefully monitored to make sure that health practices are uh, adhered to. And it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit harder to, to actually just get, step right into a kitchen in the U.S. than it is in other parts of the world. Right, right. Um, and, of course, I'm sure that you in no way ever imagined how timely this book would be when you first got the idea to start writing it. I mean, <clears throat> it's... I, well, no, <laughs> different of my friends have told me how smart I was to have such a good news hook for the book. And <laughs> I've been working on this book for parts of 10 years, as you noted, and I really, the world and me could have done without this news hook. So Absolutely. I, I had Absolutely. no, of course, I had no idea. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'm going to get, I'm going to kind of like pick your brain to get back into the history of where the soup kitchen started and why a soup kitchen why not a curry kitchen right so hold on and stay tuned everyone we'll be back in a moment this episode is presented by total food service total food service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information from day one of the COVID-19 crisis to today, the focus of Total Food Service has been to listen to the needs of their restaurant and food service readers. They were stunned by the endless stream of heartwarming stories. Restaurants everywhere were stepping up to feed hospitality workers and first responders while nimbly converting to takeout and delivery options. Total Food Service coverage has now moved to the planning forward stage. Offered in print and digitally at totalfood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Need answers and solutions? Find them at TotalFood.com. Okay, we're back, and I am speaking with Stephen Henderson, and we're talking about soup kitchens. And Stephen has a, a very, very hot off the press um, book, and it's called The 24-Hour Soup Kitchen, Soul-Stirring Lessons in Gastro-Philanthropy. And Stephen, soup kitchen... Yes, we still have what we call soup kitchens. There also we have food pantries and food banks, which sometimes give boxes of food away or sometimes give provisions for a week or or sometimes give a hot meal in today's day, takeaway. But soup kitchen is an interesting term. Um, and I know that you you write a bit about the history of that and, of course, about a certain chef named Alexis Soyer. Can you, and he, he had a famous famine soup. Can you kind of fill us in a little bit about some of the beginnings of the term soup kitchen and the, and the actual function in the kitchen itself? Well, sure. Happy to. Um, as you noted in your introduction, um, their income inequity is not a new concept. There have always been 
more fortunate people and less fortunate people and hungry people. And some cultures at different part, parts of history have figured out different ways to feed them. Um, our history uh, in America comes from Great Britain. And in the, in the United Kingdom, the idea of soup kitchens basically came about as a result of the Industrial Revolution, where, say, I mean, you know, 1760 to 1820, 1830, 40, that's what historians usually determine is the time period when the Industrial Revolution changed the course of history from basically hand production and agrarian, you know, hand-to-mouth culture to a form of production that relied on machines. I'm not teaching you what the Industrial Revolution is, <laughs> but um, that brought about big social change of, yes, increased in pro productivity, but also a, a rise in population and greater income inequity that then created a greater need for hunger relief in Britain. And so at the basically the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, the, the British government had to figure out ways to feed poor people in England and Wales and Scotland. And some historians suggest that at the beginning of the 19th century, over 60,000 people a day were being fed in London alone. And soup was cheap. It was easy to make. It could be stretched with water. It could sit, you know, hot for a long period of time without drying out. And if it was served with a piece of bread, it could constitute a meal. And so soup kitchens proliferated. There were um, a number of them built in, in London and around the United Kingdom where it gets really weird and timely to what we're currently experiencing is um, they became so popular and fed so many people that the British government was having trouble financing these things. And so, unfortunately, for those of us that love Earl Grey tea, um, we're not going to be able to drink it quite so happily after you hear this story. But he was the prime minister of, of uh, the United Kingdom from or the period about 1830 to 1834. And while he did some great things, um, he abolished slavery in the British Empire. He got greater representation uh, in the House of Representatives. He also oversaw the passing of this thing called the Poor Law Amendment, which basically made soup kitchens illegal. Mm-hmm. It, uh, he decided, and the, the Whig government at that point decided that too many people were on the dole. There were, you know, there were welfare queens, to use a more contemporary phrase, and they weren't having it. And so they decided that they would instead have workhouses that were so awful by design that people would not want to go to them. And so basically people were shoved off the dole and made defend for themselves, which was something that happened up until the Great Potato Famine in Ireland created so much hunger and so much suffering and so much death that soup kitchens had to be reopened, which brings uh, us and the story that I tell in, in my book to this fabulous Frenchman named Alexis Soyer, 
who, um, he was a, as I said, he was a Frenchman. He got to London as a young man. He was an operator and very flamboyant and very um, ambitious. And he eventually gets himself a job cooking at the Reform Club, which was a gentleman's club on Pall Mall in London, basically patronized and members were the richest and most powerful men, not only, not only in England, but really the world at that point, because England was at the height of its naval power. There was no richer country anywhere on earth than, than the United Kingdom. And so he's cooking for the richest of the rich at this club. And he builds a kitchen in, in at the Reform Club that was truly a wonder of the world. I mean, people would come to see this kitchen because no one had seen such an organized and systematized and high-tech way of preparing food. Uh, Alexis Soyer literally invented cooking with gas, among other things. He invented kitchen timers and, you know, all these things. And so at a certain point in the Irish potato famine, he goes to these rich guys who he's cooking for. And again, it was all men. You know, women were not allowed in the club, much less. And he said, I'm going to go to Dublin and I'm going to take everything I've learned building this kitchen here and I'm going to create a cooking machine that will allow me to feed hundreds of thousands of people in Dublin that are starving and are going to die unless we do something. And so these rich guys all said, go ahead, you know, we'll fund you and we'll, you know, make do with less fancy food while you're gone. And so that's what he did. So basically he invented, I say he invented the soup kitchen because he invented this system of mass cookery. There's that term again, that allowed him to churn out endless seatings of 600 meals of soup and bread over and over and over again for days on end in Dublin during the Irish potato famine. Right. Well, definitely. Jose Andres must have taken a page out of his book, for sure. I wonder if, I'm sure he must know about Alexis Swayne. Right. Well, I know he has quite a library, and I'm sure he has uh, probably has the biography of, of him as well. Interesting to find out. That's some. That's something on my list to do. Um, but was there such a thing with the famine soup? Was that just a... a, a nomenclature for, you know, the soup feeding the those who were starving or were hungry? He actually did invent recipes that were cost productive, I mean, cost effective and easy to make and that used little meat and lots of grain and uh, legumes. And interestingly enough, he tried these things out on his patrons. He would cook the recipes first and feed them at the Reform Club and if these guys, you know, didn't complain, then he knew that that was something that was delicious enough that he could also be fed to to poor people. So um, I think he probably amused himself by doing this. But yeah, he created an actual recipe called famine soup. Huh. Interesting. You don't happen to know what was in that recipe, right? Is it printed anywhere? Or? I've actually cooked it, Linda, and it's really... It's kind of tough sledding. Um, it's it's mm. not something you want to eat over and over again. It's kind of a gruel. Mm-hmm. It's um it's got a little little bit of ham in it and a lot of vegetables and a lot of grain, and it's kind of a slightly porky tasting oatmeal porridge. A real stick to your ribs soup for sure. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's yeah. it's 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 got calories, but it, right. it doesn't have a whole lot of flavor. Right. Well, um, the he went 
it's something that I that I definitely want to mention about him that you wrote about in your book, um, because that's a page that you took from him, um, more or less. He that he wrote this pamphlet, but the poor man's regenerator. Was that about yes. the soup kitchen? No, that was. I mean, he also basically. Yes, there had been recipes before, and yes, there had been cookbooks, but I liken him to being sort of the Martha Stewart, Rachel Ray, you know, Emerald Lagasse. He was a he was a popularizer. He was a showman, and and he was you know he understood the need of publicity, and so he basically invented cookbooks, and especially cookbooks that poorer people could could work with the recipes. They were simple enough to follow and they used humble enough ingredients that The Poor Man's Regenerator was a book written for poor people who didn't have a lot of money. They couldn't buy choice cuts. They couldn't buy, you know, baby vegetables. They couldn't buy, you know, the fanciest condiments. And he created recipes that the average person could make with, you know, over a fire with one pot. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, interesting because he and I will I will let people know what you what you had written about that I knew about that um, he contributed a penny from the sale of every copy of that pamphlet to go to the relief of the poor. And I am telling my listeners now that you are donating 100 percent of the proceeds from your book to benefit the food bank. You know, for New York City, which I think is... A- food Bank for New York City. Right. Which is the lar- largest hunger relief agency in New York City, and they've been really hit hard by COVID-19. So. Absolutely. And I, I think that's a wonderful gesture on your part. That's very generous. And I encourage my listeners to go out and look at the book. I don't want to tell too many details from the stories, because I have to tell you, you are a very entertaining writer. And each of these stories about the soup kitchens where you put in some time, they read like short stories in a, in a, a compilation of, of little, little, uh, little novels. And, I, and they're very entertaining and yet very informative at the same time. So anyway, I just want to put that in there to let people know that if they run out to read those stories and buy that book, that 100% of the proceeds will be benefiting the hungry um, and going to the food bank for New York City. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you for that. And may I just say one more thing about Alexis Soyer, though? Sure. That he he was so important to me, not only because of this uh, uh, innovation he had in creating a mechanism of mass cookery, but as I said, he was he was not a saint. He was not a social worker. He was not a full-time do-gooder. He was... He was. Uh, he loved the theater. He loved to sing. He loved to tell dirty jokes. He spent a lot of money on clothes. He he was famous for having all of his clothes cut on the bias so that they draped around him in a super flamboyant way. He always wore patent leather boots and a beret just cocked so across his head. And he was, you know, I mean, I'm sure these rich guys that he cooked for, they laughed at him behind his back about, you know, what a peacock he was. He was a little bit of a drunk. He was a little bit of a womanizer. And and I, and a friend of mine said, well, he's the patron saint of agnostics. And, and I think that's right, that, you know, m- most of us, we want to do good sometimes, and we would like to help people in need sometimes, and we would like to cook 
for poor people, maybe sometimes. And yeah. and I think Alexis Soyer is a good example of the fact that I think we have mistakenly think that people that work in soup kitchens are all more saintly, better, holy, halo-wearing folks, and we're not that, so I guess I'm not welcome in a soup kitchen. And get over that. You know, soup kitchens need help. And Right. Well, that brings me to a, the, another point that I wanted to talk about, and um, and it does involve feelings on, on both sides, because soup kitchens went on to play such an important role, as you mentioned, in in the early 1900s, and especially you know the the Great Depression. I mean, there we saw, as I mentioned in the beginning, the bread lines and the and the lines for soup. But there is a lot of feeling of shame and humiliation on the part of those who have to stand in those lines often to you know to get the free meal or the free food and there should be no shame and humiliation when it's a, a, the cause has been foisted upon you and it's not due to your you know the uh, anything that that one that person has done then there's also also the feelings that one gets from working in these soup kitchens or at these food pantries or even if you just donate and so it's an interesting balance of 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 feelings that one that, you know, surrounding these, um, these institutions. And certainly it had to make you feel good when you were working in these soup kitchens to see the help that you were giving these people. Well, yes. And I mean, I've, I've been a waiter in, in restaurants at different points of my life. And, you know, when you're a waiter, you want there to be lots of diners because that means more checks and more tips and, you know, they're called covers. And, you know, when at the end of an evening, when you're having your staff drink and people say, how many covers did we do? And everybody's excited when it's 100 or 200. or, And when you work in a soup kitchen, when the lunch is over, you're kind of excited that you've actually managed to feed 200 people or, you know, 300 people or 80 people. But then you're also sad Mm-hmm. You know, that you wish that there didn't have to be 200 people who were hungry lining up. So it's both, Linda. It's it's a feeling of of uh, joy that... And I, I, I thank you for mentioning it. The, the, my book is not grim because soup kitchens aren't grim. You're, you're helping people get a meal that makes them happy. And like any kitchen, it's, it's hubbub. It's putting on a show and people laugh and it's fun in into actually the the mechanism of getting the food out there there's some real joy in it but as i said at the end there's a sort of wistfulness of wouldn't it be nice if we didn't all have to be here that's correct and i mean that's why i say in the beginning it was tough for me because i had just been just before um you know putting the last touches on getting the show ready i had been reading the morning news and seeing those numbers jump up um about another you know 3. Two million people filing for unemployment, and then about all. But then, of course, in the restaurant and hospitality world, which is all about food, and so many people rely on those restaurants. They've been hit so hard. Most of those workers, as you said, you were a waiter. You weren't on salary. You weren't on staff. Those are gig workers. They don't qualify. I mean, well, now they have a program where they can get some relief, but majority of them don't even report. We don't even know those numbers. Those numbers are so high, and so. There are several relief organizations around that will help even those workers, and, and that's very important. And they are the ones who, interestingly enough, the ones who spend their time making sure that other people eat and, and providing food and serving the food 
And now many of those restaurants are giving back to them and making sure that they have food and the restaurants are providing food for those who are in need. And so many of them are their own workers and they're giving food back to them. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a tough situation that we're in. And, and again, I think the fact that you have chosen to, to uh, donate your proceeds is, is so important right now and, and a wonderful example for other people. And there are a lot of different organizations there. You know, it's interesting. I was, I mentioned before that the majority of the soup kitchens and a lot of the food banks and pantries are run by religious organizations or civic organizations, but there are a lot of um, other relief organizations as well that sort of pop up and started by individuals. Well, Jose Andres and his world kitchen is, is one of them certainly. But in France, you write about the, um, the restaurant de cour. Um, can you tell us a little bit about right, that? Right, started by another body, interesting figure. He was He's often called the French Lenny Bruce. Mm-hmm. His, his uh, stage name was Calouche. And he, you know, he had a ribald body act and, you know, no one's idea of a saint. But when he found out that the French government was paying more to store food than it would have cost to actually gotten it into the mouths of hungry people, he started this group of uh, uh, food kitchens, soup kitchens across France called the Restaurants de Cour, about the heart, the restaurants of the heart. And, you know, yet another example of the fact that, um, as you note, a lot of a lot of uh, relief and hunger uh, organizations are run by the church, but a number are not. Mm-hmm. And... It's been my experience too, Linda, in, in soup kitchens across the U.S. that even those that are run by church organizations, sometimes there's proselytizing going on and a little bit of a, you're going to have to hear the sermon and pray before you get a meal. And in a lot of even church-run organizations, that is completely not the case. And people are hungry and we're showing them God's love by feeding them. We don't need to tell them about God through anything but this plate of food we're giving them. Yeah, well, that's they certainly feel the love by, by having a, a warm meal there. Um, soup kitchens, as they were soup kitchens, well, but let's food pantries, food banks. Um, you know, you could go in, get a hot meal, sit down, eat the hot meal there. That certainly has changed in today's world. Um, and well, you, that, you, that you has, kind of... and, and that's, that's kind of a sad thing too, Linda, that not only are, are numbers increasing, but so many of the, the people that I would speak to in soup kitchens would say that when you're hungry, and especially when you're hungry and homeless, there's, there's problems of, of food and, and cold and not having shelter. But one of the main problems, sleep deprivation, but one of the real problems is loneliness, and that people come to soup kitchens or a a group meal in a setting like this, and they get to at least, even if you're not seeing your old friends and you're sitting around laughing and joking, you're seeing other people and you're you're sharing a space and community with other people. And these days, uh, the soup kitchens that are open, like as I said, this one I'm cooking at in Hudson, New York, the meals are individually served in containers and then wrapped in plastic bags and the plastic bags are put on a folding table outside the Salvation Army in Hudson. I don't even see the people I'm cooking for. They just come and they pick up a bag and they go, presumably to eat the meal alone. Mm. So 
it has to be done. It's, it's, you know, we have to maintain social distance and we have to stop the spread of the virus. But that's a, yet another affliction being put on hungry people these days is, is loneliness. Yeah. Well, it is, it's good work. And uh, it's, it, there are so many ways people can help. They can, they can volunteer, as you say, there are, you know, soup kitchens and, and food pantries. Um, food pantries, maybe depending on how they're structured, less so need the volunteer, but um, food banks need volunteers. Food bank, the food banks are always asking for volunteers. Um, so aside everybody from, needs volunteers. Everyone needs a volunteer, right? Um, and for any of you who have in your past volunteered, I'm sure many people have volunteered in in different forms of one way or another, whether um, delivering boxes of food to people or you know meals at holiday time. Uh, but they're all they also need money for those who still have the money to you know to donate and find it within themselves to do so. There are so many great organizations to donate it to. Um, the organization you are is Food Bank uh, donating to. is Food Bank for New York City. And that's very yes. easy to go to for Food Bank, foodbanknyc.org. And there's also um, secure.feedingamerica.org. That's a food bank across America. And that's... Um, that's always looking for help. And there's also, of course... I would say that any any of your listeners within five or ten miles of where they're currently sitting, there is a soup kitchen or a food bank. And right. one phone call and you've got a chance to do something good for somebody else. Right. And I encourage people to look for ways that they can donate, either in, in kind by volunteering or or giving what they can because it's it's a time of need. This is we're in a we're treading into you know un, well uncharted waters. Let's put it that way. Um, the numbers are just so great of people in need. And Stephen, your book is a delight because it it adds you know the human element and brings a smile to your face when you read some of the stories. They're just they're, they're just they're very entertaining, as I said. So I encourage people once again to look for this book and uh, these days that would be online and not in the in the, in the bookstore. It's 24-hour soup kitchen, soul-stirring lessons in gastrophilanthropy. And my guest and author again is Stephen Henderson. Stephen, thank you so much and good luck with your work in the soup kitchen and I hope to hear more from you in in on the written page. Linda, thank you so much. This has been an honor to speak with you. I appreciate it. And, and thank you all for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends. And please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.